ability to apply these things to our lives. So we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, for a few weeks. Uh, and in chapter 2, we've, we've been looking at what it is to be reconciled to God. Uh, that's essentially the theme of it. And Paul's emphasis in chapter 2 has, has been about the fact that God reconciles people to himself by his grace. And, and we've looked at the grace of God, that it's by grace through faith. Uh, as in past studies. Last week, we looked at the reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles. We we looked at the fact that there was great hostility between these two groups, a, a Gentile being anybody that wasn't Jewish, and that the Jews had been entrusted with the oracles of God in times past. And yet, uh, we also saw that when Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch, where uh, the Jews rejected the gospel, and they were representative of the Jews in general, and that Paul's instruction now was to take the gospel, the good news, that's what gospel means of Jesus Christ, to the non-Jewish world, to the Gentiles. That's you and me. So as we look now at, at verses 19 through 22 this morning, we, we're going to see that it's a window into the results of God's grace being poured out, both individually and corporately, uh, in reconciliation, in reconciling Balancing the books through the work of the cross and drawing people to himself. So just to quickly recap where we've been at in this chapter, in verses 1 to 3, we saw our lost condition, hopeless, dead. In verses 4 through 10, we saw God's amazing, merciful, loving work of salvation, that as he saved us, not as a result of anything that we did, not our works. And we saw it further than that, that not only was it not on the basis of our works, but that we are his workmanship, that he's the one that wants to do the work. He simply wants a vessel in us that's yielded to him working in us and then through us as he reaches other people. So we looked at that. In verse 11, we saw that the Gentiles were separated from both the provision and the promises of God, that they were outside of the covenant, separated from the commonwealth of Israel. We saw that they were hopeless in that place. Uh, they were separate, separated from the Jews who had been God's chosen people. They, they didn't have any promises from or covenants with God. They literally were under condemnation and hopeless. That was their part. And then God, being rich in the mercy that he has, saved us, saved them. They, again, were you and I. That's Paul's point in this, is that the Gentiles formerly were far off. We looked at that, and now that they've been brought near by the blood of Christ. So in their natural condition, they were lost, headed to hell. But the point that Paul makes is, so were the Jews. They didn't any longer. Uh, they, the covenant of law was no longer in place. It was no longer a part of what was needed to relate to God. And so the point in all of that was that both Jew and Gentile were lost. So in Jesus, Paul tells us now that we've been reconciled both to God and to one another, Jews and Greeks. It's taken out of the way. We looked at the Soreg last week where he says that he's broken down the dividing wall that separated the Jews and the Greeks. We looked at that as a literal wall in the temple courts there, in, in the court of the Gentiles that separated the Jews. If you were a Gentile, you could go up onto the temple mount and you could approach the temple 
but you could only come so close before you came to this uh, probably waist higher, a little higher wall uh, called the Sorig. And then you, the only way you could go past that is if you were Jewish. He says that whole thing, and he's using that metaphorically. We're going to look at metaphors this morning. That whole thing was taken out of the way. That in Christ, there's no longer a separation between Jew and Gentile. It's equal opportunity salvation, regardless of any of that. And so we, we've been looking at that, that he breaks down the walls that separate lost sinners from God. That that's the point that Paul's making. It's not about uh, nationality. It's not about culture. It's not about covenant of law. We looked at, he's, he talked about the law contained in ordinances and all. It's not about that, but it's about that God is making a new creation from the two, that that he no longer sees that distinction anymore. So when he saved us, he brought us together in Jesus. That's what we look at as, as how we apply that to our lives. And then we see now that Paul is in this section that we're looking at this morning, that he moves to uh, to describe our relationship to God. We're going to look at the family of God this morning. And, and in these verses, Paul, he, he begins to elaborate and he uses metaphors. He describes his family as being made from both redeemed Jews and redeemed Gentiles. That covers it. So we're going to look at verses 19 through 22. I'll read through them and then we'll come back and we'll talk about it for the balance of our time. So in verse 19 of Ephesians 2, we read, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. There's a mouthful there, gang. And, and as we look at this, I mentioned metaphors. Simply what a metaphor is, it's a figure of speech. And see, so you're taking one thing and you're laying it down next to another thing because you, you're making a comparison between the two. <clears throat> Jesus uh, was the master of metaphors. Here are a few that Jesus used. He said, you're the salt of the earth. Uh, and essentially in that he's saying, being a Christian is kind of like being salt. And salt, if you look at the properties of salt, that it, it was both purifying and, and, and it was used as a preservative that uh, also, if you had a wound that you would pour salt in the wound to cleanse the wound, it was a cleansing agent. And yet that really stung at first. I mean, you could start looking at how this metaphor fits. And that was his point. That's why he would use these metaphors. Not literally salt, but you're like salt. Uh, you're like light. Uh, you're the light of the world. He goes further on in, in the Gospel of John, says, I'm the light of the world. And he talks about the light being that which is shown into dark places. And we know that that's what the light of the Gospel does in our lives. It brings illumination to our need for Christ. It brings illumination to areas of our lives that he wants to get a hold of. And so he, he says that you're like light. He it characterizes himself as being like a door. Metaphorically speaking, uh, he's saying, I'm the only way in. Anybody else that comes in is a thief and a robber. He comes in, climbs over the wall. No, I'm the door to the sheep. And so metaphorically, 
he's, he's illustrating something about himself or something about the kingdom of God. He goes. He says, "I'm the true vine. Uh, the the vine. You're. I'm the vine. You're the branches. Uh, in other words, the nourishment that you get spiritually is only going to come from me. You have to be connected to me as a branch in the vine. If you're not connected to me and you're pruned and you're you're not part of the the, the people that are receiving their nourishment from Jesus Himself." That he says that that's gathered up and thrown into the fire. Not a great picture, but a true one, because you have to be connected to the vine. That's how he uses that metaphorical term, the kingdom of God. A relationship with me is kind of like being a branch connected to a vine. The bread of life, light of the world, and so on. You get where I'm going with this. Those are metaphors. Now, Paul, in this passage, gives three metaphors. Uh, and they're important because they magnify our relationship with the Lord. Uh, the first metaphor we see is the metaphor of belonging. The second that we're going to look at is the metaphor of a birth. And the third, a metaphor of a building. So uh, just moving into this, we'll look at the first one. We'll work through all three of these because that's the order that they're found in the text. Uh, we see in, in verse 219, he says, well, he begins with now, therefore, we've looked at that before. Uh, what he's doing is he's saying, look back at what I've already said, and now take that and apply it to what's about to be said. Uh, in verse 17, it says that, uh, that he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and to those who are near. Looked at that last week. Uh, for through him, we both have access by one spirit. To the Father. And if you look further back than that, if you look at this entire chapter where it's leading up to now as he's beginning to describe the, the family of God, that you were hopeless, you were dead, you were without any covenants, you were as a Gentile in this place of being far off. Uh, looking back, you were utterly, absolutely, completely lost. Is what he's saying. Uh, he says here in verse 219, he says, you are no longer, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. So with that in mind, the fact that you were without hope, that you were, uh, couldn't be further from God, that you're no longer in that state as somebody who has come and given their life to Christ, somebody that has been redeemed, somebody that's been reconciled to God. That's what this is about. That you're no longer strangers and foreigners. So that's the first metaphor. He, he says, he, he's, you're no, no longer this. He paints a picture of the Gentiles here with these words. The word stranger, the Greek word is paroikos. Uh, it's a resident alien. That's the word, that, how it translates. as somebody who had taken up residence in a place, but had never become a naturalized citizen. That would be, in our country, that would be somebody that we look at somebody who has a green card. They live here, but they're not a citizen of this country. So in context, strangers are those who are not part of one's family. They're outside. That might be the guy that lives down the block, but he's not part of your immediate family. He's not part of the uh, the, the group, the core of your family. So interesting. I was looking at this and thinking about it. Have you ever been a stranger? Uh, have you ever been in a place where you didn't know anybody and nobody knew you? Perhaps you moved and you were in a new school or at a new job or uh, in a new town, even a new state. 
uh, I, uh, looking back in my life, I know what it is to be a stranger, and I know the pain of being a stranger. It, it, when I was a kid, my family moved 19 times from the time I started kindergarten until I ended my senior year. There were 19 different places, where, we, and most of the time it was outside of the school district I was in, and uh, it was very difficult at times going in, and my heart goes out to people who, for one reason or another, must of necessity move because it's difficult for kids to, to be a part of your peer group and then to come in and then you don't know a soul. Uh, that's sort of the feeling here. He, he's saying that you're a stranger. You're he, he, On the other side of that, we're wary of strangers, uh, not just being a stranger, but looking at strangers. We tell our kids, don't talk to strangers. We don't let strangers into our house. We're wary. We have our guard up. Uh, at one time, I remember uh, a friend got some tickets for us to, my son and I were at Candlestick Park. This is before they moved to the, the new park where the, the San Francisco Giants were playing. And we went down to watch a baseball game. Uh, the Giants and the Colorado Rockies were playing at Candlestick one time. And so we went down, and, and when we went in, uh, it turned out it was hat day. And so as you went through the turnstiles going into the game, they were passing out these hats that had the, the Giants emblem on the front and all. They were cool hats. Uh, and then I remember they gave out little baseball bats that were about a foot long. That was another deal that they were doing. But the point is, is that after the game, we're walking through the concourse on our way to get out to the parking lot. And my son was a teenager. I don't know, probably 15, 16 years old. And I noticed that some guy, some stranger was bugging him. And so I kind of got my dad hackles up and I'm thinking, all right, what's this guy doing? And I'm very wary, very suspicious. And, and I walked over and I literally stepped between this guy and my son. And my son was behind me. This guy's in front of me. And he's kind of got the shocked look on his face. And I, and I kind of in my, in, in my growly voice, yeah, I, I could do that. Uh, I said, you have a problem, buddy? And, and he, he looked kind of shocked, like, uh, no, he goes, man, I'm cool, I'm cool, I'm cool. And he turned around and he walked off. I thought, and I'm feeling kind of proud, like, yeah, I just protected my son. Well, I turn around and I look at my son and I could tell by the look on his face that he didn't like that. And I said, what's going on? What's wrong? I, you know, was trying to protect you from this guy. He, he, and my son said, I didn't need protecting. He was offering me 10 bucks for my hat, and you just blew the deal, Dad. Strangers. We're wary of them. And they're not part of our circle. So uh, the point in that is, as we deal with strangers, as we look at what Paul says here, he's saying strangers are outside, definitely outside of your family. They're outside of the people that you're comfortable with. So now, as we go further here, we look at foreigners, the word there is xenos, uh, and, and it's further away than a stranger. A, 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 a foreigner are sojourners. Those are people that this is not their country. They're from a foreign land, and this is not their home. They're aliens. So he uses, he makes a distinction between these two, and he's going somewhere with it. A stranger may live down the block. But a foreigner isn't even from the same country. This is somebody that's further out, further away. You who were far off. As foreigners, 
we're in a place where we don't belong. Uh, we live in a country that's not ours. We're separated from others by culture, uh, by language, by nationality. Uh, and I don't know about you, but if you've ever been to a foreign country, you know what it is to be a foreigner in a strange land. And the general policy that people have with foreigners is, is one of exclusion, not inclusion. Uh, we tend to stick to ourselves culturally, uh, with strangers, with foreigners. That's just kind of how it is. And that's why Paul uses these two words. He accurately portrays, paints a picture uh, of what these two groups look like prior to Christ. So, verse 19 again, he says, Now therefore you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but, there's that word, love that word, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So, the second metaphor is one of birth. He talks about you've gone from being a foreigner, somebody from another country, to now you're a full citizen. You have citizenship. As citizens, you're no longer ignorant of God. That's his point. When I hear others preach about him, when I, when I hear people talk about God, sing about him, testify of his goodness, all of that, I have connection now. I have identification. I find my identity in that. That's the point of, of going from being a foreigner to a citizen. So as we look at that, citizens, they, they no longer are without rights or without standing. Again, apply this to the kingdom of God. That's his, his, his intent in all of this. In this metaphor is to say the kingdom of God is kind of like going from being a foreigner to being a citizen. This is our homeland. We can't be deported. We're no longer separated from God, but on an equal footing with the rest of his family, the saints. It's not about nationality. It's not about uh, prior life. It's not about status. We even have access to the king himself in this. Uh, I came across this quote by a guy. He says, we no longer live on a passport. We have a birth certificate. We truly do belong. Isn't that good? Uh, the metaphor continues here. He says, you've gone from being a foreigner and a fellow citizen. He doesn't stop there because you're still not part of the family as a fellow citizen. Yeah, maybe you've gone from living in a different country to now living down the block, but that doesn't bring you all the way in. That's why he continues with this metaphor. He says, we're not only fed up fellow citizens, but we are also of the household of God. That means we were not merely citizens of his kingdom. Uh, you ever see the, the, the TV ads they, they, where they're hyping some product and all? And they'll get to the end, they'll go, but wait, there's more. Well, this is sort of a, but wait, there's more. You're not only a citizen, here you go. We go from being a stranger to being a member, literally a member of God's family, the family of God. When we were saved by the grace of God, we were born again. We were adopted out of Adam and into Christ. We're told that in Colossians chapter 1. Uh, it's a far more intimate relationship now being a member of the family, being brought from that of a stranger to a family member, uh, that of being a citizen, a foreigner to being a citizen. As a citizen, I can know about the king. I can, I, I can, Understand that I might even be able to meet the king someday, but as a son, I know the king. 
That's the intimate part. That's what Paul is getting at in this, that we're no longer far off. We're brought near. Both the Xenos and the Peroikos were always on the fringe, and at best they were tolerated. At best. We looked at the enmity, the hostility last week between the Jews and the Gentiles. Very much, we see racial tensions in our day today. We see tensions between poor people and rich people. We see, there's, you could just go down the list. He's saying that doesn't count in the kingdom. He says, you're no longer strangers. You're no longer foreigners. You've been adopted. You've been brought all the way in. You haven't been brought part way, but you're, you've been brought all the way in to, to the, the intimacy of a family. When we talk about, uh, at best, these people were tolerated, we, no, it's not about tolerance. Uh, I've mentioned before, if I woke up in the morning and I stared into my, my wife's eyes and I said, oh, honey, I tolerate you, it probably wouldn't go well. No, it's not about tolerance. It's about acceptance. It's about being accepted in the beloved. In Ephesians chapter 1, the the chapter before this one that we're in, we read in verses 5 and 6 that God predestined us to adoption as sons, part of the family, by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. In other words, he wanted to do this. He, He knows all about you he knows all about me, and he did it anyway. He wanted me to be a part of his family. That's remarkable, folks. It's remarkable. According to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, not based on who I am, but based on who he is. That's what's being said here, by which he made us accepted, accepted, not tolerated. He doesn't say by which he made us tolerated in the beloved. No, he made us accepted in the beloved by his grace. Interesting quote that I came across, uh, that when it's talking about our adoption, that, that we find a different kind of a unity in Christ. When we're looking at identity, when I formerly identified with this world, when I my, found my identity in maybe my social standing or my wealth, or I found my identity in all of the things that the world serves up and offers, the, the, the idols of this world, that we no longer have our old identities uh, based on race or class or status or life situation. The point in this is that when we find our identity anywhere other than Christ, the church will be made up of warring factions rather than loving siblings. Uh, folks, it, it breaks my heart. I see it from time to time. Churches that are not, that are not, grounding people in the word of God, that they become social clubs and pretty soon they become factious and pretty soon those factions divide and they begin to to go to war with one another. It happens. I praise God for our body. I praise God that there's peace. I praise God that, that we take this brother and sister thing seriously. We can have disagreements. We cannot line up with this or that. And I'm not talking about major doctrines of Christianity, but we can, we can have our own opinions about things. But where do we find our identity? That we find it in Christ. It's he that binds us together. That's how we identify now. So the question is, what does it look like when we take the radical notion of being brothers and sisters seriously? I came across a couple of examples I'm going to read. 
because they say it better than I could. Uh, and, and I just love this. I love the, the picture that this paints for now finding our identity as members of the family. Here's the first. It looks like an elderly woman, no one would ever confuse with cool, on her knees at the front of the church, praying with a body-pierced 15-year-old anorexic girl. Interesting. Here's another picture of, of what finding our identity in Christ and being a part of his family looks like. It looks like a white millionaire corporate vice president being mentored by a Latino minimum wage earning janitor because both know the janitor is more mature in the things of Christ. Those lines are erased. They're taken out of the way. That's why him binding us together as brothers and sisters is so important. That That's how we're glued together. If we're glued together by anything else, it's a recipe for us to divide. Jesus said, here's my commandment, that you love one another. It's a command. He's saying, you need to do this. You can't afford to get it wrong. Why? Because when the world looks in, are they going to see warring factions? Are they going to see a bunch of disgruntled people? Or are they going to see the love of God at work, active in our lives as we interact with one another and as we interact with the world around us? Really important stuff, gang. Uh, As we look at a biblical view of how brothers and sisters interact. Uh, I'm going to read for a, a few verses from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And the Apostle Paul uh, writes this. In verse 1, he makes four rhetorical statements. In other words, they're assumed, but he says it like a question. They're like rhetorical questions because the, the assumption is that they're full, and, and you'll get that as we go. He says, In verse 1, he says, Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, we know that Jesus doesn't give us consolation. He is our consolation. That's what the Bible tells us. If any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, in other words, since these things are given by God and are in place in your lives, and I trust they are, verse 2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. What do you mean? We disagree on No, if your identity is in Christ, you're going to have the mind of Christ. You're going to be like-minded in the things of God. Having the same love, uh, that, that sacrificial agape love, that love that says, you're more important than I do. He says, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. So he say, this is what it doesn't look like, being ambitious or puffed up. Look at me. He says, but in lowliness of mind, humility of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you, he makes it personal. He says, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's what family life looks like in the body of Christ when it's functioning well. Yeah, there are times where some of us are off. There are times where we are called upon and the Lord presses us to just have grace for one another because we all have areas where we're broken. We all have areas where we struggle. And yet the overarching principle here, gang, is that when our identity is in Christ as not not as foreigners, but as citizens, not as strangers, but as members of the family, that this is how it shows up in practical, everyday terms in our lives. So we've looked at the metaphor of belonging, no longer foreigners, but citizens of his kingdom. 
We've looked at the metaphor of a birth, no longer strangers, but born into, adopted into the family of God. Finally, the third metaphor here, the metaphor of a building. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So, individually and together. He says being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. In, in, what he's talking about here, gang, is that he's, he's likening the body of Christ. That's what he's talking about, the body of Christ, the church, you and I. He's likening it, likening it to a building founded upon the, the, the apostles and the prophets, those who God selected, God raised up to, to bring uh, illumination of this thing called the church, of this thing called the gospel, this thing called Christ, this person called Christ, not a thing. So he's saying the foundation is the apostles and the prophets, not the law and the prophets. Note that when they made reference to the old covenant was the law and the prophets. And no, he says the apostles, those men who were pressed by God to purvey the, the good news of Jesus Christ, his atoning death on the cross and the prophets, that that's the foundation that we are individually stones in this building, in this metaphor, and that Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. He is the, the, the stone that establishes the entire building. That stone, and I'm going to take the time to go into it in depth, but that stone was critical. It was critical for the support of the entire structure. That's his point. In in 1 Corinthians 12, he uses another metaphor, uh, the Apostle Paul, and he uses a metaphor of a human body. He says, we're one body, but many parts. Again, referencing the family of God, those who belong to Christ, that you might be a toe, you might be an elbow, you might be a finger, you might be a belly button, probably not. But the point that he's making there is that we're all parts. We're all members of one another, but Jesus is the head. And that as the head, he is the one that controls the body. So he uses that metaphor very effectively. And now in this, here in Ephesians, he's talking about this building, this temple. He specifically uses the word temple because it's a building that's consecrated to God. And and it's for his use and for his dwelling place. There's no mistake, the play on words here, that he's making a loose allusion to the temple in Jerusalem because that had been the dwelling place of God where the 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 priest could approach only on a limited basis because sin had never been dealt with. And yet now, as the dwelling place of God being me being you, because our sin has been taken out of the way through the finished work of Jesus, that now we are the habitation place. We are the dwelling place of God. And, And that's his point. The body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the image of a building is just another way of describing the body of Christ, the church. So the point in all of this is that all of the redeemed... Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, foreigner, stranger, all who have placed their lives in the hands of God 
through the work of the cross, all who have let the weight of their life down on Christ are part, are stones in this temple. So he's talking about the temple corporately, that we're members with one, of one another, but individually, we have our own individual relationship with him. So summing up as citizens, we share a common country. As children, we share a common bloodline. As part of the building, we share an indivisible unity that we are linked to one another. To, to, to God, yes, and to one another, absolutely. That we are part, our lives are intertwined with one another as we together are part of this greater thing, this greater reality called the body of Christ. Again, we live in an invisible kingdom. It's not one that is seen. But this unseen kingdom is made up of you. It's made up of me. It's made up of uh, of anyone who identifies, finds their identity in Christ. As such, understanding how close I've been brought. As I mentioned, he knows all about you. He knows all about me. And he wants me to be a part of his family. It's remarkable. It's a wonderful thing to understand that I'm, I'm given full rights, full citizenship. I'm given complete entry into the family, complete acceptance by the family, by him. Great news, guys. As we wrap up, I want to look at a couple of things before we receive communion together. What about you? Uh, are you on the outside looking in? Are there areas of your life that perhaps, as a Christian, that the Lord has been putting his hand on some things in your life and you realize, Lord, I've been living more like I'm outside the family than in? I want to encourage you, my friend, give him first place in your heart, in your life. Let him change your perspective. Let him draw you all the way in. Don't let that line be blurry between being in the world and being in Christ. These are not days to mess around. These are not days to be living with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. Come all the way in. If you don't know Christ this morning, you can take care of that with a simple prayer. And it would sound something like this. Lord, I've lived outside of your kingdom. I've lived outside of your family my whole life. And I see in this that that there's a greater sense of belonging. There's a place to find my identity in you. And I'm turning from the old life. I don't like the direction my life's been going. I see that it's been empty and futile, perhaps warring and all of those things that the world serves up. And Jesus, I invite you into my heart. I ask you to be my Lord and Savior. I ask you to add me to the family of God. I guarantee you, on the basis of his word, he will do it. So if that's you, come home. If it's either of you, if, if, you've, been, if you've been standing outside and should be in, if you have never been, just simply come home. Allow him to be Lord in your life, to, be, to rule and reign in your heart. You'll never be disappointed. He'll bring peace. He'll bring clarity. He'll bring purpose. He'll, he'll bring a sense of belonging unlike anything that you could know outside of the body. So uh, with that, we're going to uh, receive communion this morning. And I want to just say that this is a time for God's people. 
uh, as I mentioned, you can take care of that. If you wonder if you are or not, that it's a simple prayer away. He's not going to make you jump through a bunch of hoops. And yet, this is a, a thing for God's people. This is not an empty ritual that we do. Uh, but as we consider the body and the blood of Christ, uh, we want to take it seriously. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verse 23, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to this church at Corinth. He's writing him a letter. It's largely a letter of correction. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. I got to looking at this, and I started thinking, well, why did he make his point of reference the night that he was betrayed? And I began to look at the greater context here in 1 Corinthians. They were taking the Lord's table lightly. Uh, they they made it a party of sorts. He says, some of you are even getting drunk when you come to do this. And I'm not, I'm, I know that's probably not the case here. Um, but the point that he's making is, the idea is, is that in, in order to celebrate the Lord's table in a proper manner, uh, we do too well to remember the circumstances surrounding when it was instituted. Uh, the circumstance Paul refers to here was the fact that Jesus was betrayed by a professing Friend, he wasn't, but he professed to be, and a follower. And so, what what Paul's doing is he's bringing a sense of sobriety to this. He's bringing a sense of of uh, uh, this is something that we reverence. Uh, we don't take communion, coming to the Lord's table. You can call it both. We don't take it lightly. We understand that when Jesus said to do this, he said to do it to remember me, the work that I accomplished on your behalf when you were helpless, as we've been talking about this morning. It says in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 11, And when he had given thanks, uh, he took the bread and he broke it. and He said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, as we consider the bread, as we look at the body here of Jesus, if we consider that his body was broken for us, that that we were without hope, that we were aimless, wandering, we were without identity, Lord, that, that he saved us, not on the basis of our stuff, but on the basis of his love, your love for us, poured out through his body being broken. We know that in Second Corinthians we're told, that he became sin, that we could become the righteousness of God in him. We are so grateful, Father, for the, the body of Jesus that was given for us. Let's take the bread. told in the same manner he also took the cup after supper trouble swallowing he also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes we remember, folks, we don't do this again. It's not an empty ritual, but it's a time for us to look back. It's a time for us to look forward. But it's a time to be present with the Lord right now. We look at the things he's done on our behalves. We look forward to the hope that we have. 
we realize that all of it is rooted in the blood of Christ, which was shed for us. This cup, symbolic of his blood, when he went to the cross, atoned for my sins, that I could be forgiven now for my sins, cleansed from all unrighteousness, the Bible tells us. Great news. Let's pray. Father, as we take the cup, we're reminded of the work that Jesus, that your son did on our behalves. We're thankful, Lord, that you have given us a future hope, heaven itself. And Lord, we also know that it's your will that that we allow our lives to be rooted in him, that as we live our lives in the present, that, that it's through your spirit that you empower us to live all of it by the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. Words don't express our gratitude, and yet, thank you. Thank you for the work that you did for us when we were without hope and powerless. We praise you this morning in Jesus' name. Let's take the cup. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and give you a good day.